Hey, hey, and welcome to episode 57. Thank you for clicking on that little triangle that points to the right for a go-around of this podcast that thrives on all things cinematic, past, present, and future. Whether this is your first time tuning in or your 57th, you're taking the time to listen, so hey, thanks. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. We're in early July as of this recording, so for those of us here in the Northern Hemisphere, it's summertime. The season of sangria, sunblock, and sunshine. And speaking of sunshine, my niece had her 8th birthday party at my mother-in-law's this weekend, so good summer fun for her means all 9 kids. Herself, her brother, and 6 cousins, 2 of them being my own 2 kids. All in their grandmother's pool, all ranging in age from 1 to 17 years of age. Most of us adults wisely sat out on that splash fest and talked amongst ourselves from a reasonable distance in the backyard. My brother-in-law got a playlist going, perfect shit for the shindig of an 8-year-old. He got air supplies out of love, Toto's Africa... Bonnie Tyler's total eclipse of the hat. Not that it mattered. The little ones were caught up in horsing around with the pool noodles to notice. So a jolly July to one and all, and to anyone who's in the southern hemisphere, happy winter. But let's get down to why you're here. There was no episode last week because I was actually out of the country. The wife and I, with our two teenage kids and my mother-in-law, spent a couple of weeks going around Germany. We flew out to Munich, spent a couple of days there before seeing a couple of smaller Bavarian towns, then Dresden, Nuremberg, and eventually Berlin. But it was being at one of the small Bavarian towns when there was an unexpected windfall that came my way. One of those towns was Nordlingen, that's N-O-I-D-L-I-N-G-E-N. We stayed overnight there for one night, in fact. And let me tell you, there is nothing like seeing a different part of the world and being surprised that it's not entirely new to you that you've seen it before in a different context. What exactly is that supposed to mean? I was hit between the eyes with a certain piece of movie information that resulted in the focus of today's episode. Okay, so, get this. This town, Nordlingen, is the town that Charlie Bucket, Willy Wonka, and Grandpa Joe are looking at from up in the sky in the glass elevator at the end of 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The tour guide mentioned this, and I was there like, get serious. Maybe these aerial shots last only a minute or two at the end, but there they are. Not many film buffs from Massachusetts can say that they stayed overnight in what was used as Charlie Bucket's hometown, so, voila, episode 57. Directed by Mel Stewart, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was first released in the U.S. on June 30th, 1971, before going global throughout the rest of the year. That makes it 51 years old. That may have some people who grew up on Tim Burton's 2005 remake feeling aghast and saying to themselves, I clicked on that little triangle that points to the right to hear about a 51-year-old movie. Alright, but hold on, hold on. 51 years ago, maybe a while back, but before you pull the cord to get off the bus, let me suggest helpfully, but helpfully, that we call to mind the words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. And that said, for this episode, there'll be a special format, one that deviates from what we normally do, and defiantly breaks the chain of convention like a vermicious canoe. First, you'll be taken through the film. Not completely, but somewhat from start to finish, with some commentary along the way. So if you haven't seen this film, or haven't seen it in a while and want no spoilers, please proceed from this point on with the knowledge that this particular episode will be chock full of spoilers. So spoiler alert, now. Then we'll hop on the Wonkatania boat and sail to the behind-the-scenes fun facts. Decapitated chickens not included. If you know, you know. Then we'll climb aboard the Hasawakanao, the Wonka Wash spelled backwards for a special segment updating you on the five actors who played the golden ticket-winning cherubs. Then a special feature, the justification for my thesis that the character of Grandpa Joe is a self-serving, duplicitous scumbag. 
This segment is called What Makes Grandpa Joe Totally Blow. Then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the trivia segment involving all of you listeners. So grab yourself a scrum diddlyumptious bye, sit back and relax with a fizzy lifting drink, and watch your head if you float up to that ceiling fan. And if chocolate's not your thing, no worries, just have the Bucket Family Blue Plate Special. A bowl of cabbage water. Whatever your choice of snack is, ride that glass elevator square ways and front ways as we rewind to 1964 for some Wonka wackiness. 1964. British author Roald Dahl publishes his children's book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's typical Dahl storytelling, meaning that it's eccentric and fanciful, a little disturbing at times in tone, but overall a pretty common reading choice in schools and libraries worldwide for decades. There's a young boy, Charlie Bucket, who lives with his parents and four grandparents in abject poverty. They're starving. Poor Mr. Bucket works his ass off every day in a factory in front of a conveyor belt that slides tubes of toothpaste past him. His job is to pick up each tube, screw the cap on, and put it back on the belt. Not a lot of room for advancement in that field, I guess, but at home, the four grandparents are all bedridden and have been that way for over 20 years. Four elderlies who've been lying supine all that time, and they're all on the same friggin' bed, two at each end, Grandpa George and Grandma Georgina, Grandma Josephine and Grandpa Joe. How the Board of Health never came down hot on Mr. Toothpaste and his missus for those living conditions is beyond the scope of imagination, but there it is. But Charlie's a good kid. He doesn't smoke, he doesn't swear, he never hollers at anybody, he's respectful and obedient, he loves his family, and he's so perpetually hungry that his stomach practically touches his backbone. There's a chocolate factory in his town, see, and it's owned and operated by the mysterious Willy Wonka. Wonka has not stepped foot outside that factory, so no one knows who he is or what he's like. The guy is an enigma, living in this self-induced state of anonymity. Every year for little Charlie's birthday, the family saves up their cash to be able to gift him with a Wonka chocolate bar that costs 10 cents. And oh, what a day that always is. His one indulgence. Wonka bars are the bomb, the cat's meow, the snake's hip. In this fictional world that Roald Dahl created, Hershey's and Nestle's, which are never mentioned by name, can screw off because the Wonka brand's where it's at. I first read the book in the fifth grade. Picture it. A typical Massachusetts elementary school classroom, 10 or 11-year-old me is sitting there, unsuspectingly, when the teacher welcomes one of the school librarians in. She comes in, stands in front of the room, and says, Yo, guys, what's up? What book about chocolate does everyone know? In my head, I thought, oh, that's easy, chocolate fever. I read that one a few times as a kid. A kid is obsessed with chocolate and eats it with no self-restraint and no moderation. His parents see that he never gets a toothache or a stomachache, so they're there like, hey, manja ragazzo, manja. And the chocolate finally screws him over, he gets what's called a chocolate fever, and, spoiler alert, is eventually cured by promising to eat less chocolate and taking vanilla pills. It's a freaky story now that I'm thinking about it, but it doesn't matter because that's not the book the librarian was talking about anyway. Getting back to her question, a couple of the kids in the class call out, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and I remember she joined them in saying the title. I'd never heard of that one. I was there like, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? The fuck's a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? But I was soon to find out. Over the next couple of days, she read the book to us in spurts, and I listened, and I was there like, man, it's messed up. Afterwards, she handed out to each of us a small snack-sized piece of chocolate and told us that a few of us have a golden ticket inside it. No, I was not one of them, but I remember thinking, even in those pre-COVID times, wait, did this lady open some of this candy, shove a piece of gold wrapping paper or something inside, and then re-glue the candy wrapper shut? Suffice it to say that I was there like, I never thought I'd be so happy to lose a contest. But here's where we should hone in on the 1971 film. Presumably, to keep the cast smaller, the film has Mr. Bucket deceased, no toothpaste tubes in this one. 
As the opening credits roll, we're treated to a series of shots of chocolate bars and fudge and chocolate kisses and whatnot being manufactured by all of this machinery. Instrumental versions of I've Got a Golden Ticket and A World of Pure Imagination accompany these mouth-watering delights, or sugar-induced toothaches if you like. But the credits end as a shot of a schoolhouse dissolves in. The dismissal bell is getting gonged and the kids rush out and head straight over to the local candy shop. They charge in through that door and clear the threshold like a bunch of rowdy hurdlers and yell and holler all at once to the shopkeeper Bill, played by Aubrey Woods, about which bar they want. And the happy shopkeeper Bill is dutifully passing out bars to these kids, addressing them by their names and the kind of bar that they asked for. He then says to all of them, and listen, and like a confectionery switch was flicked, they all happen to hear him and shut their mouths all at once. Now, you'd think that he'd want their attention to say how much they owe him, because no money changed hands? But they might just have a running tab look at the local tavern, because what he wants to tell these boys and girls is not, hey, punk bitches, you owe me ten bucks in back pay, but instead, hey, Wonka's got a new buyer out today, the scrum umptious. He then launches into the first song of the film, The Candyman. And he's either got a hell of a faith in the honor system, or he has incriminating blackmail info on these kids, because as he's singing, he still takes no cash. He literally opens his countertop and lets them tear loose of his entire stock. He's even throwing out handfuls of candy into them without warning, doesn't even peg any of them in the eyes. By the time the song ends, Bill's singing the last line tenderly to one kid in particular, standing on his ladder. He sings, The Candyman can, cause he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. Cue the kid, slowly and generously handing Mr. Happy a lollipop of his very own. Incredibly moving that she's sharing with him his own shit that she didn't even pay for. But his eyes widen, he accepts it, and he sings, And the world tastes good because the Candyman thinks it should, and slowly hands it back out to her. Okay, I'm sorry, but this guy is no Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis Jr. sang a version of the song that is not in this movie. The British songwriters were not wild about Aubrey Woods' rendition, which disappointed them because they wanted it to be a potential hit single, and granted the guy cannot hold a note in a duffel bag. But Sammy Davis Jr. was struggling to justify working on a song as fluffy as The Candyman, at the same time that he was getting ready to travel out to Vietnam to entertain the troops. He hurried through the recording of the song in two takes. When he listened to the playback in the recording studio, he moaned, quote, This record is going straight into the toilet and it may just pull my whole career down with it. End quote. But in the end, it was all roses and sunshine when his version of the song shot to number one on the Billboard charts and got him a Grammy nomination. So he swallowed Crow and washed it down with a Wonka ice cream soda when he admitted, quote, There are lots of regional hits, but rarely does a record become an international hit. With a 5% royalty, I made half a million dollars, end quote. Maybe he could prove his mea culpa by paying off the kids' debts in the candy store. Anyway, back to the movie. So Bill's song is done. Cut to a slow zoom in on the face of poor Charlie Bucket, who's standing outside of the candy shop and looking in with sadness that he can't join the rest of the kids. But what I want to know is why. Okay, he's got to get to work. He has a paper route. His boss even does say to him, oh, hey, Charlie, you're late. But come on, he couldn't run in and grab a lollipop to go. Come on, Charlie, self-advocate here. It's happy hour on the shop, so grab whatever the hell you can and go while the going's good. But for whatever reason, he doesn't. He just dejectedly turns around, walks away, gets his supply of newspapers, does his paper route, finishes his paper route, and then finds himself standing outside the gates at Wonka's factory in bewilderment and fascination. He jumps out of his shoes when suddenly a voice behind him recites some poetry. Up the airy mountain, down the rushy glen, we don't go a-huntin' for fear of little men. Now that's an excerpt from a poem called The Fairies by a 19th century Irish poet, William Allingham. But wait, there's more. After this creepily macabre recitation, the voice continues. You see, nobody ever goes in, and nobody ever comes out. 
Jolly doesn't say a word, but the guy's got a pushcart with all these knives and Meekleave is dangling from it. He pulls it back away from Charlie and then squeaks away. Okay, here's the thing. If that cat is in such dire need of some WD-40 as he rattles it away, how did Charlie not hear him approach him from behind? So Charlie runs home and greases family with his paperboy salary and a loaf of bread for dinner to accompany the usual cabbage water. When he walks in, Grandpa Joe shakes Grandpa George awake, saying, Wake up! Wake up! Charlie's home! He takes what's left of his salary, hands it to Grandpa Joe, and says, From now on, I'm paying for your tobacco. Now, to his credit, Grandpa Joe does say he gave that shit up, and that, hey, when a loaf of bread is a feast for a family, I have no right buying tobacco. But Charlie's mother says, Ah, oh, come on, Dad, it's only a pipe a day. And Charlie says, Go on, Grandpa, please take it. Okay, I'm sorry, but maybe Grandpa George or Grandma Georgina or Grandma Josephine could use the money for some Ben Gay or Metamucil. Maybe Charlie's mother wants to install solar panels on the roof. But in the face of destitution, tobacco is apparently top priority for the buckets. Later that night, everyone's asleep except for Charlie and Grandpa Joe. Charlie's telling him about the poetry recitation outside Wonka's factory, and Grandpa Joe tells him what he knows about Wonka to fill in a few gaps. Okay, now, rather than asking Charlie for a description of this creepy-ass guy who wanders around town with rusty cutlery and talking threateningly to children he doesn't know, Grandpa Joe just simply says, he told you no one ever goes in or out of the factory, and right he was, Charlie. So, stories of the origins of chocolate bars rank higher than a lesson in stranger danger. Thanks, Joe. Good call. And then we get into the part of the story that kicks everything into high gear. Charlie's at school. His teacher, Mr. Turkentine, blows up some chemicals in his desk in a science experiment. And the announcement comes that Wonka is letting five people tour his factory and get a lifetime supply of chocolate. Five lucky winners who find golden tickets hidden inside five chocolate bars anywhere in the world. Class is dismissed, and the whole world goes head over heels apeshit, crazed and clamoring for any Wonka products remaining on the shelves. There's a series of really great scenes that both parody cop and detective shows that were big at the time, and throw in a hearty helping of sarcastic social commentary. We're introduced to characters who appear in just these scenes, and how their frantic search for a golden ticket goes wrong. It's a great sequence. A computer technician who claims to have invented a machine that'll tell him where the tickets are, a woman whose husband is kidnapped and held for ransom to the tune of a case of Wonka bias. The first four tickets are all found by despicable kids. In order, we have gluttonous and rude Augustus Gloop from Germany, played by Michael Balna, shrill and shrieky and spoiled Veruca Salt from England, played by Julie Don Cole, and two American kids, the crass and abrasive perpetual gum chewer Violet Beauregard, played by Denise Nickerson, and the capgun-toting, violence-loving television addict Mike TV, played by Paris Themen. No spoiler here to say that our hero Charlie eventually finds the fifth ticket, rounding up the five lucky winners. But before he does, there is one scene where Charlie and Grandpa Joe once again are the only two awake in the middle of the night. That scene begins with Charlie asking, Why'd you wake me up, Grandpa? Okay, I'm sorry, but how the hell did this guy, who's allegedly never left his bed, get the kid up? I mean, did he throw a fucking paper airplane at his face or something? But he got Charlie up to give him a wonka bar for another shot at finding the last ticket. Charlie protests, Grandpa, I told you that money was for tobacco. And Grandpa Joe replies, and I told you, Charlie, that I've given it up. Now, to piggyback on my previous question, how the hell did Grandpa Joe get the wonka bar? I mean, did he call Uber Eats? Is he in cahoots with the Oompa Loompas and have a sent special delivery? Did he do what we suspected all along and secretly get out of bed when no one was looking and cabbage patch his way down the street in secrecy to Bill's candy shop? Whatever the case, there's nothing in the wrapper but the chocolate. But eventually, Charlie does find the fifth ticket with money that he found on the street. 
On the day of the big event, the five winners and one parent or guardian each gather outside of the factory to wait for Willy Wonka's grand entrance. In the book, the first four kids had both sets of parents with them, but again, presumably to keep the cast limited, in the film it's one parent each. The great Gene Wilder plays Willy Wonka in what is definitely a career highlight for him, and he knows how to appear on screen memorably and charismatically. Charlie's got Grandpa Joe with him as his chaperone. His mother's presumably back in the laundromat where she works, and the other three grandparents are left alone at home in bed, stewing in their own filth. The entourage of ticket winners and their adults join Wonka in entering the factory to the cheers and the applause of the crowds who have gathered to watch them go inside. And here's where I have another question. He invites them to take off their coats and hats and galoshes and hang them in the hand-shaped hooks on the walls, which they do, but the hands suddenly come to life and clutch the coats, which makes the kids and their parents scream. The camera swerves rapidly from Mrs. TV and Veruca jumping out of their skin to Willy Wonka holding out his hands and hurriedly reassuring them. Little surprises around every corner, but nothing dangerous. Don't be alarmed. And that's that. Okay, so what are these hooks? Did Wonka push a secret button? Are they motion-censored, just a couple of pesky poltergeists? Are they Oompa Loompas whose job was to stay behind the wall and stick their hand into these hooks? Which is pretty tedious if you ask me, if until now no one ever goes in or out of the joint. Through a series of events, as the tour of the factory gets underway, one by one the kids fall prey to their passions, and are presumably killed off. Augustus Gloop ignores Wonka's rule that no one touches his chocolate river and face slams into it as he greedily slurps half the river down his esophagus. He falls in and gets sucked into a pipe that leads to the fudge room where he'll get boiled up. Then Violet Beauregard ignores Wonka's warning not to chew a piece of his experimental gum, for it turns her into a friggin' blueberry filled with juice. The Oompa Loompas roll her down the hall to squeeze the juice out of her before she explodes. We never hear an explosion, so maybe Violet got out okay. Then Veruca Salt has a memorable scene in the Goose Room when she scream-sings a little tune called I Want It Now. Okay, let's hit the pause button and talk about that scene for a bit. Wonka's showing them his magical, oversized geese who lay golden eggs that are shined up and shipped out all over the world for Easter. Bad eggs go down the garbage chute to the incinerator. Not even a recycle bin, Wonka? Anyway, so I did the math. In this scene, the laying of, testing of, shining of, and wrapping up of each golden egg is about a two-minute process. There are ten geese in the room. That means that if each goose lays a good egg, so we're not factoring in the potential of a lot of bad eggs here, then that's ten good eggs every two minutes. That's 262,800 good eggs a year. Not nearly enough. So long as either got to get more geese or face a receding profit margin. Okay, unpause and back to how the kids are trimmed off one by one. Mike TV does not heed Wonka's stoic and weary stop, don't, come back and sends himself via Wonka vision so that he's reduced to the size of a hand. Yet another question. So, like, whose TV sets and Wonka's grand idea gets the real chocolate bar that's sent by Wonka vision? One big-ass bar is sent in the demonstration to one TV. Is he thinking you gotta buy the TV set that has another winning golden ticket? Is he only expecting one viewer? This leaves Charlie, the last kid, standing. At first, Wonka dismisses him because Grandpa Joe previously had peer-pressured Charlie, his own grandson, into stealing the forbidden fizzy lifting drinks. They had floated up, bumped into the ceiling that now has to be washed and sterilized, and burped their way back down, causing untold copious amounts of air pollution. So, for Wonka, the day was a bust. Kids suck. Grandpa Joe gets all ripshit and turns to Charlie and says, We'll sell his competitor Slugworth, that fucking everlasting gobstopper! But Charlie instead turns his back on his grandpa and returns the thing, which makes Wonka whoop with joy that he found an honest kid in the lot. He brings them both into his glass Wonka Veda, smashes through the roof, and floats through the sky above the Bavarian town of Nordlingen for a happy ending. 
despite the fact that the flying elevator has no landing gear. So there's the story. Charlie not only gets the lifetime supply of chocolate, but also the whole friggin' factory itself. Wonka will train him personally and hand the factory over to him, and the whole family can move into giant bed, cabbage water, and all. Can I ask one last question? Are the Oompa Loompas supposed to be psychic, or are they really good at improv? Because they've never met Augustus, Violet, Veruca, and Mike before, but they have choreographed songs about each of them and their vices. You know, it is a puzzlement. So, what say we now pivot towards the behind-the-scenes fun facts? Yes! Number five. Gene Wilder would only sign on to play Willy Wonka if he could make his grand entrance limping out of the factory, towards the gate, and then suddenly somersault forward without his cane. He told Larry King on CNN in 2002 that he wanted to introduce the character this way because, quote, no one will know from that point on whether I'm lying or telling the truth, end quote. Which does pretty much sum up his character. Number four. Madeline Stewart, the daughter of the film's director, Mel Stewart, was the mastermind behind getting the movie made. She told the Los Angeles Times in 2012, quote, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was my favorite book at the time, and I told him this would make a great movie, end quote. She got to play Charlie's classmate, Madeline Durkin, in the schoolroom scenes. She has one line when Mr. Turkentine is teaching, rather shoddily, about percentages, and asks her how many Wonka bars she opened up. Her three-word line, about a hundred. Number three. The movie title was changed to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory because of a marketing tie-in strategy. The film was financed by Quaker Oats, who wanted to use it to advertise their forthcoming line of chocolate bars. The chocolate bars were named for Willy Wonka, not Charlie Bucket. So, it made sense from a business perspective to change the movie's title from that of the book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, to that of the product. Number two. Unfortunately for Denise Nickerson, who played Violet Beauregard, she could not lose the blueberry makeup on her face all that easily. Two days after shooting the scene when she goes full berry, she was sitting in math class when a friend looked at her and said, in concern and surprise, you're turning blue. The makeup had been so caked on her face that it was resurfacing through her paws and took another 36 hours to disappear again. Nickerson later joked, quote, needless to say, I didn't get asked out for a date in that school, end quote. And number one. Unfortunately, not too many props from the movie survived. But Julie Don Cole, who played Veruca Salt, took home a few mementos, including one of the everlasting gobstoppers. In the early 2000s, she sold some of it. The gobstopper was purchased for $100,000 in 2017 on the show Pawn Stars. And now it's time for the segment of this episode where I promised you updates on the Wonka Kids. Number 5. Michael Balna, who plays Augustus Gloop. He is, as of 2022, a 63-year-old tax lawyer in his native Germany. In 2021, he told the hosts of WGN Morning News in the U.S., quote, The film is not famous in Germany. Nobody knew of the film until the version with Johnny Depp came out in 2005. So when I tell people I was a part of the Willy Wonka movie, nobody knows, end quote. He also said that he enjoys going to conventions and meeting up with his surviving castmates. But there's a downside to his chocolate-laden memories of that room where some of Wonka's dreams became realities, and some of his realities became dreams. The chocolate river that poor Michael Bolna had to fall into was actually cold, dirty water. He called it, quote, terrible, stinking water. It had been there for weeks, and it was very shallow, just 10 centimeters deep. 
There was a small space of about a square meter where I had to jump in. It was dangerous because the water was not clear. End quote. Yummy. Number four. Denise Nickerson, who plays the rude and abrasive gum-chewing chatterbox Violet Beauregard, was probably the most experienced actor of the Five Cherubs. Before Willy Wonka, she had already appeared as a regular in the cult favorite vampire TV series Dark Shadows that ran from 1968 to 1970. After transforming into a blueberry in the chocolate factory, she appeared as a regular in one season of the children's show The Electric Company. And she pursued guest spots on sitcoms like The Brady Bunch and a handful of television movies throughout the 70s. After appearing in a commercial for the fast food chain Burger Chef, with C-3PO, R2-D2, Darth Vader, and a small merry band of stormtroopers, she retired from acting in 1978 and worked in medical offices as an accountant. In July of 2018, though, she suffered a massive stroke and never really recovered. Paris Themen, who plays Mike TV, and Julie Don Cole, who plays Veruca Salt, together visited her two months later in September that year, where they sang songs to her from the movie. Nickerson could not verbally communicate, but according to Cole, smiled and laughed. One year later, 2019, her son and his wife made the difficult decision to take her off life support. And Julie Don Cole tweeted to acknowledge her death, referring to Nickerson as, quote, my dear friend and Wonka sister, end quote. Number three. Speaking of Julie Don Cole, she remained visible on television in her native England throughout the 70s and 80s, counting among her co-stars people like Roger Moore, Colin Firth, and Susanna York. In more recent years, she wrote a memoir called I Want It Now, and she's a regular on the convention circuit along with the other Wonka crowd. She's gone on record as admitting that during filming, both she and Denise Nickerson had a crush on Peter Ostrom, who played Charlie Bucket. There was no feud, quote, only the girly rivalry between myself and Denise for the affections of Peter. We were 12, turning 13, so little fluttering hearts were beginning to kick in. We both had a crush on Peter. He didn't know it, of course. End quote. As for her song, I Want It Now, that goose room scene was filmed on her 13th birthday. She joked, quote, they sang happy birthday and then threw me down the chute, end quote. Number two, Paris Themen, who plays Mike TV, was born in Boston, Massachusetts to classical musicians. Before Willy Wonka, he had done some voiceover work and appeared in a few Broadway shows throughout the 60s. After his stint as Mike TV, he acted sporadically while holding down a few different careers, including real estate and being a casting agent. He happily does the convention circuit as well, and owns a company that takes fan celebrity photos at those kinds of events. In March of 2018, he was a contestant on the TV game show Jeopardy, but Alex Trebek did not mention his role in the movie in the intros. He referred instead to Themen as an entrepreneur and backpacker in 61 different countries. Themen came in second place and cleaned up with $6,800 in winnings. And number one. For Peter Ostrom, who plays Charlie Bucket, this film was a one-and-done deal in his short acting career. This is his only film. Instead of pursuing acting, he chose to become a cattle dairy veterinarian in upstate New York. He does still appear at conventions and reunions as well, though, and spoke lovingly of Gene Wilder when he died in 2016. Okay, are you ready for this episode's new special feature? You are about to hear the justification for my thesis that the character of Grandpa Joe, played by Jack Albertson, is a self-serving, duplicitous scumbag. This segment is called What Makes Grandpa Joe Totally Blow. Charlie wins a golden ticket. 
That gets Grandpa Joe out of bed and sashaying his way around the room, singing I've Got a Golden Ticket, complete with high kicks, fox steps, the fox trot, maybe a few pirouettes. And Grandpa Joe's daughter, Charlie's mother, does not once look at him and say, You lying, deceitful little bastard. And if turning into Fred Astaire isn't insulting enough to the whole family, he has got the colossal audacity to turn to his grandson and say to him, It's ours, Charlie. Uh, no. No, you decrepit scumbag. It's your grandson's ticket. He makes his grandson break Wonka's explicit instructions not to touch the fizzy lifting drinks. He waits until Wonka and the rest of the gang leave the room. He knew what he was doing. Then he turns to Charlie and says, A little bit won't hurt us. Uh, stop. Stop, you evolutionary mishap. Those are the first words down the wrong path towards doom. And then he gets angry that Wonka gets angry about it and furiously calls a candy man a crook and a swindler and an inhuman monster. G go back to bed, Grandpa. Anyone listening, debate me on this. Grandpa Joe was a shameless, tobacco-smoking, cabbage-water-swelling opportunist. And with that, it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. So the poll question for this episode, number 57, was... Which of the four bratty kids, in your opinion, was the most despicable? On Instagram, there were two votes for Veruca Salt. McEwen Life says, That actress did a phenomenal job in making me dislike that character. Meanwhile, Tommy the Lawnmower Guy has this to add. Wow, it's really hard to pick the worst of a bad bunch, but I'll have to go with Veruca too. But, there was also a vote from the movie psycho for Violet Beauregard along with his comment, while well, the obvious answer is Veruca, therefore I will vote Violet. The other three were all bad, but they didn't hide it. Violet was fake and mean. Over on Twitter, Veruca cleaned up with 77.8% of the nine votes, while Violet Beauregard came in with 22.2%. Augustus Gloop got his sole vote on the Silver Screeners Facebook group page, as did Mike TV. Two more for Violet Beauregard, with a whopping 20 votes for Veruca Salt. <laughs> she apparently made an indelible impression. Jeannie Marie included with her vote a great Veruca gif image, so thank you for that. My cousin Lisa, not one for ambiguity, added, Veruca Salt is an entitled, spoiled, rotten little bitch. And bitches all in caps. Indeed. For clarity, Lisa, you might consider stronger wording next time. Thank you. And Jason Ebbs speaks wisdom in his comment that says, We need a Grandpa Joe option, a true freeloader. Jason, you speak volumes of truth. By the way, Jason Ebbs is a musician, a singer, and songwriter, in addition to the great stuff that he's released already, like the single Not Even Over, and the albums Super Ego and The Deep End. He has a new single coming out on July 29 called Always Wanted. Looking forward to hearing that one, because this guy is an artist, the real deal. So as always, thanks to everyone who voted. Involvement like this is just as cool as being sent by WonkaVision whizzing through the air in a million tiny little pieces where they go down to your TV set where they're all put together again in the right order. And keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, Instagram at FrankMendoza1974, or you can email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. And now it's time to head on over to the trivia segment. In each episode, there's a different trivia question that's directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the people in them. You're all invited to take a crack at it at any time. I do want to say that I like to err on the side of caution, 
so I don't announce both first and last names in case that would make anyone uncomfortable. So I only announce first name and last initial. But if you tell me otherwise, then full names it is. You get a shout-out as well as a movie-related meme sent you away with a personalized greeting. And don't worry about timing either. As I say every time, it does not matter what episode you're listening to, however far back, however recent. Answer any trivia question from any episode at any time. You will get your meme and shout-out. And if you're a creator, if you write music, design websites, if you're a podcaster, a writer, a YouTuber, independent business owner, anything, I'm always happy to give your stuff a shout-out. So last time, Silver Screen has welcomed Robbo and Cheeto from the podcast The Film Geezers for a 40th anniversary look back at Ridley Scott's Blade Runner from 1982, starring Harrison Ford. Daryl Hannah has a featured role in that sci-fi cult classic, and the question was, name the 1984 comedy starring Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah, in which he falls in love with her, even though she's a fish. And the answer is... Splash. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting goes out to the following. Movie trivia mainstays and regular listeners Mary C., Gail R., and Ed R., all regular listeners whose involvement I'm always grateful for. Ed says that he loves the lobster-eating scene, which is one of Tom Hanks' good comedic moments. It's also great to hear from Mary D., a friend from college, who says that she remembers watching it in the theaters as a kid with her best friend and how they pretended to be mermaids afterwards whenever they went swimming together. True story, Mary. As a little kid, sometimes I'd go underwater and pretend I was Luke Skywalker, getting sucked underneath the surface by the Dianoga creature in the trash compactor room. This is my first time ever admitting this aloud to anyone all these years later, though I have to wonder if it was more obvious than I thought. Another trivia winner may be able to tell me, and that is Kim M., who also happens to be my sister. Kim, embarrass me. Did you know all along what the hell I was doing? But moving right along, there's also my real-life co-host, Mike W., former and hopefully future guest as well, Liz M., former and hopefully future guest as well, Tommy G., who commented that he thinks it was the first movie to be edited for Disney+. And two more podcasters. The first is the No One 15 Allcast, which looks at movies from the 80s, 90s, and today. You can find them easily on Twitter, so please check them out. We're hoping to collaborate at some point in the future once our schedules align. And the second is Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho, who just released his latest episode on the new Thor movie, which you should listen to. Thanks to all of you. Keep your eyes open for those memes. And to anyone else listening, no time like the present. Join the trivia. It's fun. And you can begin with this episode's question. I mentioned already how Sammy Davis Jr. got his only number one hit with his rendition of the song The Candyman. He made a famous guest appearance on what landmark 1970s sitcom that centers on the characters Archie Bunker, his wife Edith, daughter Gloria, and son-in-law Mike, whom Archie calls the meathead. Small hint, Edith Bunker was played by Gene Stapleton, who was offered the role of Mike TV's mother but turned it down in order to do the pilot episode of this sitcom instead. And she's probably glad that she did, seeing as how she would win three Emmy Awards and two Golden Globes for Best Leading Actress in a Comedy during the run of the show. Interesting. She could have played mother to a Mike, but opted to play mother-in-law to a Mike instead. So the Willy Wonka connection is there with this satirical sitcom, especially the episode, again, where Sammy Davis Jr. made a guest appearance alongside Stapleton. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions, or have any comments on anything from today's episode, or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, 
The film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenispod at gmail.com. And that brings episode 57 to a confectionarily delightful conclusion. As always, thank you to everyone who's listening, has ever listened, or who will in the future be listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please don't hesitate to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of the deleted scene from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, in which Violet, who has turned Violet, is filled with blueberry juice and rolled by the Oompa Loompas down to the juicing room. Do they make it there in time? Or as Wonka warned, does she explode? Listen for yourself to this alternate take and you choose which way the film should have gone. Ambiguity or outright blatancy.